Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Portico. And uh, yeah, we do want you to be thinking about Alpha. If you can believe it, it's going to be launching in just a few weeks. Fall is literally just around the corner. And what we want you to be thinking about is, who in your life can you invite to come out to this event, to this series called Alpha? Some of you have people who have asked you questions that maybe you're not comfortable answering or maybe you don't know. Or maybe they're afraid to ask questions and they're looking for a safe place to ask. That's what Alpha is all about. So if you're thinking about somebody and you want to invite them, we have these invites at the uh, info table in the back. There's an Alpha table. Drop by, ask any questions you have, pick up some invites, and let's see people come through that, that class. Also, uh, next Sunday, it's going to be a very, very busy Sunday. Uh, Pastor Jeff Feuders is going to be here talking a little bit about what God is doing in Israel through the ministry of First Century Foundation. So you want to make sure you're here for that. And also, if you remember, we've been talking about uh, the Magdala Stone, which is an authorized replica of a first century artifact from the time of Jesus. That's going to be here in the building. It's a really kind of a, of a cool thing to see. So make sure you're here next Sunday. Also, next Sunday, believe it or not, is the final message in a six-month-long series on the life of Moses. How many have been enjoying Moses Unscripted? Anybody? Yeah? I'm really glad you clapped, because that would have been very awkward. (laughs) You know, I'm going to miss Moses. Personally, uh, and that's not a joke, as, as a teaching pastor, and I've been pouring my life into Egyptian culture, pouring my life into the exes and into Moses, I have really gained a whole uh, new appreciation for him. And next Sunday, it all culminates in this final session together. So make sure you're, you're here for that. Uh, this morning, we're going to have um, a good time. And some of you are looking at the stuff to my left and right and wondering why they're here. Anybody? Yeah, I don't know why they're here. I have no idea who put these here. Um, (laughs) If you think these are cool props, do not miss next Sunday. You're supposed to go, ooh. (laughs) All right, don't miss next Sunday. It's going to be awesome. But today we are looking at the, the second to last in the series in the life of Moses. And this is all about the transference of authority, of power, of leadership. It's been all about Moses, and now he's come to the very end of his life. And he's just, this is 38 years into the 40-year journey. And he gets to the end. You know what happens. He's forbidden from entering the promised land. So he's got to look to the people around him and decide who here has the potential to be the leader. And God speaks to him, and he talks about Joshua. And so we're going to look at that. But before we get to, the, to this transference of power, I want to talk about a reaction that Moses had to when God disciplined him and said he couldn't enter the land. So here's a question, and it's okay to be honest, okay? How do you respond to failure? Don't, don't blurt it out. Don't tell me what you do. 
How many people have ever failed before? Maybe that's a better question. How many have ever failed before? I'd put up my other foot if I could. This is awesome. We're a bunch of failures. And we're gathered here together to learn. Now, failure, you've heard this before. Failure is only failure if you don't learn from it. But if you learn something from it, then it's an experience. So having said that, I've had a lot of experience (laughs) in my life. And hopefully this morning will, will be one. So how do we respond to failure? What do we do? Do you get upset? Do you get upset with, <laughs> with a person who you believe failed you? Do you get upset with the circumstances? Do you get upset with yourself? Maybe you even get upset with God and you say, come on, I've worked so hard. How can this happen to me? I'm such a good person. I go to church. I tithe. I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. Why did this fail? Anybody ever have that experience? I know we all have. But what do we do? Do you complain? Sure, we do. Do we throw the person under the bus who has rejected us? We say, it's their fault. They wouldn't know success if it hit them right in the face, and success is me. I can't believe they can't recognize it. We have all kinds of ways of responding to failure. So I, I, was, I was thinking about the message this week, and I always try, if I can, to add a little bit of you know, a personal uh, story into to the message, because then it becomes real. And you guys know I believe in being transparent. I've always been that way when I traveled and preached all over the world. I always made sure that the person you saw in interviews, the person you saw on TV, the person you saw on stage was the same person you'd meet at Starbucks. So I believe in being transparent. So I want to share a story with you. It's a little bit embarrassing. Thank you for laughing. Um, A few years ago, Karen and I decided to take a road trip down uh, to Nashville because in Nashville, that's where my publisher is. They published my first two books, Understanding Jesus, What Would Jesus Read? (coughs) So I pitched two ideas, and they bought both books. I thought, I can do no wrong. I can pitch anything to these guys. and This is how arrogant I am. Because I am so great, and my ideas are so amazing, they're going to say yes and thank me for it. So I got in the car, drove 16 hours to Nashville to a place called Brentwood, Tennessee, and I'm sitting down with my publisher over lunch, and I pitched to them a novel. Now, people knew me as a researcher. They knew me as, as a theologian in, in, in my writing, but I wanted to try something different. I kind of wanted to spread my wings a little bit and take a stab at a novel. So before I went down, I'd emailed them the first three chapters that I'd written to show them how amazing my new book was going to be and to give them a chance to enjoy the the awesomeness before I arrived. Because I'm just that kind of a guy. And I got there and I said, so what did you think of the book? And they said, you know what? It's a great concept. But the writing was really weak. And I was, like, you ever watch the Oscars and you think that one actor is going to win for sure and they think they're going to win and the name is announced and it's not their name and they stand up and go, yes, anyways? Well, that was me. I knew for sure they were going to say yes to this book. They were going to sign out on the spot. And the second they said, oh. Did they say it was weak? Yeah, that's a way of saying it's not very good. I was devastated. And they said, Joe, you you need to work on on your writing dialogue skills. 
When you write dialogue, you need to make sure you're moving the, the story forward. You need to make it believable. It was just, it was very tinny, very, it just wasn't very good. I said, oh, okay. And they said, well, since we're in Nashville, let me give you a, a music illustration, they said. I said, okay. They said, some artists get very famous because they're really good at writing rock songs, right? And they make a lot of money, and all they do is write rock songs, rock songs, and they sell out stadiums. I said, okay. And then there are some artists who are country artists, and they're really great at writing country songs, and that's all they write. And they sell out stadiums, and they make a really good living. I said, okay. Now, sometimes the rock star wants to write a country song. Now, if he's going to do that, it's got to be the best country song ever, or else people aren't going to buy into it. I said, okay. They said, you write rock songs, and you try to write a country song. And they said, keep writing rock songs. <laughs> Again, a really nice way of saying it's not a very good book. Now, <laughs> I could have gotten upset. And you know what? I did. It was a very long 16-hour drive for Karen back to Toronto. Can you believe those people? They don't know talent. I'm looking for a new agent. That's it. Right? Because I was right. There's no way. I could not be right. And so, what do I do with this failure? And I had to admit, for one of the first times in my life, I failed, and I failed miserably. And so I had a choice. Do I get angry? Now, I don't want to write a better book just to prove them wrong. I want to write a better book because I can. So here I am four years later, and even last night, Karen and I were, were lying down on the floor of our family room, and she was helping me write, writing out my timeline for my new novel, and I got to tell you, this new book is a hundred times better than my first attempt. So what do we do in the midst of failure? We need to learn from that, humble ourselves, look at everything, and say, God, I want to be better. Amen? Now, is that honest? It is. Well, Moses was very honest with us, too, if you read the story in the book of Numbers in chapter 21. Moses, if anybody had a right to have a diva moment, you guys know what that is? Excuse me? That was terrible, sorry. But you know what, a diva moment. If anybody had the right to have a diva moment, it was Moses when God said, you're not going into the land. Moses could have said, excuse me, God, do you know who I am? I'm Moses. I'm a big deal. You're not going to let me go into the land? He could have gotten really upset about being denied entry into the land after all he had done. He could have said, how dare God punish me? After all I've done for him and for these people, these whiners, these complainers, who at every turn they were calling for a new leader, didn't like any of my decisions, and he's saying no, and I still got to lead them? How many of us would do that, I wonder? It would have been so easy for Moses to have a diva moment and get upset with God because he failed God. God said, speak to the rock, and instead he struck the rock. And Moses must have been thinking, really? Such a tiny, tiny little mistake in 38 years of service means nothing? It seems a bit harsh, but when we understand the whole deal, it'll make sense to us. So when Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it, it was an obedience thing because by speaking to it, 
it would have been obvious that it wasn't Moses who was doing it, but it was God. But when he hid it himself, that was him doing the action. So it was an act of disobedience, and he was putting the focus on himself. Man, he had served God and this people faithfully for 38 years. Think of what Moses gave up to take this job. Moses gave up being Pharaoh. He gave up the most powerful job in the then known world to take this gig, and he does it faithfully, and at the very end, he gets turned away. God didn't have a three strikes and you're out policy. How many parents have done that with their kids? If I count to three, God said, I'm not counting. God had a zero tolerance policy when it came to obedience to take the people into the land. That's how specific his commands were. You know, I'm sure Moses thought about quitting, especially after God told him, you're not going to go into the land, but you got to lead them anyways. I'm sure Moses had his moments. Moses stayed. He did the right thing, and he continued to lead the people. Now, let me put it in context for us living in 2017. Because this is a story that took place, you know, almost 5,000 years ago, and we wonder, how does this relate to me? Okay, so you've been working at your job for X amount of years. Let's say you've been there for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And the boss has been telling you, I'm grooming you for the position. I'm going to promote you one day. You're going to be the manager of this office. You're going to be whatever. Think of the title it is. You're like, okay, that's great. And then you make one little mistake just a few months before the promotion, and your boss says, you know what? I'm not going to give you the promotion. In fact, see the new hotshot who's still green behind the ears? I'm going to give it to them, but I expect you to do the same work until that time anyways. How many of us would still come in early, would stay late, would work through lunch, would turn in our reports on time? How many of us would be committed to the task no matter what because the greater good of the company was more important than our own little worlds? I wonder how many of us would do that. But yet Moses did just that. He came in early. He stayed late. He worked through lunch. He turned in his reports because getting the people to the promised land was more important than what he was going through himself. You see, in the book today, Numbers 21, Moses was becoming very, very aware that his time to lead was coming to an end. So now he's got to start thinking about the next generation. He's got to start thinking about what to do next. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, he says, guys, I'm 120. I'm 120, and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord's told me, you will not cross the Jordan. But you know what's interesting? It had nothing to do with Moses' age, why he didn't cross into the promised land. It had nothing to do with his health, either why he didn't cross into the promised land, because Deuteronomy 34, 7 says that Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. So it wasn't that he was too tired. It wasn't that he couldn't do it anymore. It was because of his disobedience that he couldn't do it. And I thought it was interesting that Moses said, I'm 120 years old. I don't know if you remember, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, when God is speaking 
to man, he says, uh, moving forward, the normal lifespan, the maximum age a person can live is 120. Even though Moses was disobedient, even though Moses wasn't inheriting the promise to take them into the land, God still blessed them with the maximum numbers of years. Guys, God is a good God. Even when we don't come through, when we don't do our part, he loves to bless. He wants to bless. And he blessed with Moses with long, long life. And so Moses was building this legacy, building a legacy of all that God had been doing. And the truth is that we're all building things in this life. That's why we get up in the morning. We, 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 we want to go to work. We want to save our money. We want to buy stuff. We want to do things. We're all building things. But what are we building? Are we building stuff for, for just a few years while we're here on this planet called Earth? Or are we looking for something more? Are we looking beyond this life? Moses wasn't just interested in building a name for himself, but he was building a legacy of God's power of God's awesomeness and God's ability to keep his covenants. And so the first thing we learn from the life of Moses in this passage is that we need to be intentional about building a legacy of faith. We need to be intentional. That means we have to purpose to do it. We have to put thought into it. We have to try to make it happen. I know when I was, before I was married and I saw this, beautiful young woman at youth group. I could have prayed all day long. She wouldn't have magically floated across the room and come to me. Although it's hard to believe why she wouldn't do that, I know. But I had to be intentional about winning her over, speaking with her, buying her nice things, dressing nice, shaving, showering, all that stuff. We have to be intentional if we want to get something. Is that right? Well, what are the things that you have done in this world that you believe are of value? And right away, some of us will point to our houses, to our cars, to our bank accounts, to our degrees. And all those things are good. I'm not saying they're not. But most of the time, the things that we're most proud of They're about things that are going to stay behind when we move on to the next life. You think of some of the the greatest authors of our time. You think of people like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Shakespeare, all these amazing men who in their lifetime, they weren't recognized for their talents, but after they were gone, their legacy lived on and went on. Some of us who are raising children in the then and the now, we don't always see the rewards of raising our children. It's hard work. But one day, maybe even while we're here, but most likely after we're gone, people are going to say, oh, wow, man, he was just like his dad. Oh, she was just like her mother. It's the things that we leave behind that matter. And the older we get, the more we begin to think about the eternal. Isn't that true? You know, I'm I'm 47 years old, and to a lot of you, that's so young. (laughs) And to some of you, that's so old. (laughs) But to me, I'm 47, and I'm starting to get up there, and I'm realizing, wow, I don't know what's going to happen, but there might be less life in front of me than there is behind me. And what happens is our focus begins to change. Faith is an important part of who we are. It's 
Faith is an eternal piece of us that will always live beyond what we do. And, and listen to this. And I want you to maybe even write this down if, it's, if it strikes you. The people who live for the temporary leave a temporary impact. But those who live for the eternal, they leave an eternal impact. When they look at my life, one day when they stand at my grave, and they will, and they look at me, I don't want them to focus on the things I accomplished in this world. But I want them to focus on things that I set in motion that are going to last into eternity. Let me ask, what's the most important thing in your life? If you're not sure, here's a tool to help you identify the most important thing in your life. Are you ready? Where do you spend the most time? What do you think about most in your life? Can I tell you what mine is? And it's really pathetic. Coffee. First thing when I wake up, coffee. But then when I go to bed at night, I think, oh, the sooner I go to bed, the sooner I'll wake up and get coffee. So what we think about is most important. Where we invest our time in becomes most important. You know, when we lived in our first house in Milton, this guy had this huge, beautiful boat on one of the side streets. The thing was massive. And it had a 500-horsepower engine. And I had to fight walking up to the engine and just hugging it because it was so beautiful. And every weekend, that guy was out there. He was polishing and waxing and cleaning and vacuuming. I'm telling you, that boat was the most important thing in his life because I saw him invest in that more than anything else he did. Now, is it wrong to have hobbies? Absolutely not. It's okay to have hobbies. I have hobbies, and that's why I have some of these things here today. If you come to my house, these are the things that will jump out at you. The first thing you'll see at my house is my awesome Star Trek collection. Come on, how cool is that? Look at this. We have Mr. Spock over here. Live long and prosper. This is a Borg. If you don't know what a Borg is, I can't help you. (laughs) And this awesome thing, this is the Enterprise. This is the ship of all ships. Thank you for applauding. Now watch how cool this is. I'm going to see if this works. Ready? Come on. Hey, I paid 50 bucks for that. I wanted to put it to use. So that's one of the things I love. Now, if you also know me, you know that I love to fish. Fishing has been one of my favorite pastimes, and I've owned boats throughout the years, and I've sold them, I've owned them, I've sold them. But I, I love to go fishing, and it's a wonderful hobby. It's something, you know, that you can just enjoy doing. I love casting. I don't remember if I took the hook out of this thing. Gotcha. Here, maybe over here. Not bad? There's no hook. So I love Star Trek. I love fishing. But if you also know me, you know that I love astronomy. Now, if you can believe it, This is my little telescope. This is the baby. I can only see four billion kilometers with this one. It's not very good at all. No, it's true. 
My other one, I can see 21 million light years away. So this one's 4 billion. It's pretty good. Now, if you remember, last week we were talking about the meteor shower that took place on Saturday night. What's happening tomorrow at 1 (laughs) o'clock? Right? There's a solar eclipse. And then in September, we're having a massive planetary alignment taking place in the constellation of Virgo. It's a great time for astronomy right now. And in the month of November, if you guys remember, before I came on staff here, I came as a guest speaker and did something called Story in the Stars. And that was like the crazy one-service version. Well, in November, we're going to take our time and unpack that and look through all the constellations in November. It's going to be kind of a really cool series. So these are all the things that I love, but this is not what I want you to remember me for when I'm gone. If this is all you remember of me, I will have failed in my mission. If you stand on my grave and say, man, what a nice telescope he had, (laughs) I will have failed in my mission. But I want you to stand by my grave and say, oh, he loved God. He loved his family. Man, did he love people. If nobody mentions my bank account, nobody mentions my house, nobody mentions my fishing pole, I'll be okay with that. I've been to a lot of funerals, and so have you. Guess what? Everything stays behind. Everything stays behind. You know, we don't believe like the ancient Egyptians. Do you remember? They used to fill their funerary chambers with gold and silver and rubies and emeralds because they wanted to take it with them to the next life. I read about one pharaoh who made sure they packed his favorite fork. I'm not kidding, because he wanted to use that fork in his next life. (laughs) Another common practice was that as a pharaoh, upon my death, I would have all my favorite people killed and put in the tomb with me so that we could enjoy the afterlife together. So don't be my friend. (laughs) The truth is, it all stays here. Jesus said in Matthew 6, don't store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy them, where thieves can break in. But he said, store up treasures in heaven. He says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So where's our hearts this morning? Our legacy should be about building the kingdom Not our kingdom, but the kingdom with a capital K, the kingdom of God. Some of us spend so much time building our little kingdoms in this life, don't we? We work so hard. We sacrifice so much. Sometimes marriages are destroyed in that pursuit. Families are destroyed in that pursuit. Our health is destroyed in that pursuit because we're trying to build and build and build this kingdom. And again, Jesus nailed it. He said, what does it profit a man? to gain the whole world. Who cares? But you lose your soul. You lose your family. Guys, nothing is worth it. Our legacy should be a legacy of faith that looks forward to eternity. Amen? Even Jesus recognized how important it was to invest in other people so that the legacy can continue. I invest in my kids because I want them to continue a legacy of faith. Jesus, in Luke 6, it says that he got up early in the morning, he went down to the Galilee, and he handpicked 12 disciples because Jesus believed his message was so important that it had to continue after he was gone. So he took these 12 men, and he poured into them, and then he said something very incredible. 
He said, not only will you do the things that I do, but in fact, my desire for you is that greater things you will do than me. So if there's something that you believe in, there should be somebody at the ready to take that when you're gone. If it's not important, let it die with you. But if it is important, and I believe that you believe it's important, make sure we thoughtfully begin to think about those that we can invest in so that message can be carried on. Amen? So I wonder who God has placed in our lives that we can mentor, that we can speak into, that we can raise up, that we can build up. I wonder. Maybe it's a person in your row. Maybe it's a person in this room. Maybe it's somebody in your subdivision, in your school, in your place of work. I don't know where it is. But we need to begin to look for those people that we could speak into. We all need a Joshua to our Moses. We need to have that person who we're raising along beside us And at the right time, at God's time, that transfer comes in, and then they're able to take it and not just do it, but do it better. How many parents in this room want their kids to do worse than you? Not a single hand. Now, how many parents want their kids to do better than you? I'm not talking about more money in a bigger house to be happier, to be more fulfilled. That's what a parent wants. And that's the power of legacy, is leaving to people those things that are precious so that in turn they can take it forward for another generation to enjoy. Numbers 27, 18 says that the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Recognize who those leaders are, and begin to invest in them. And something curious began to rise up as I was looking at the life of of Joshua. Joshua was there from the very beginning. He was quiet, but he was there. He proved this faithfulness to Moses. Whenever he was needed, he was there. He never tried to steal the spotlight. He was there serving alongside, and he didn't come into the spotlight until it was his time. Now, Joshua is one of two or the original two million people who actually make it into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, that's it. Nobody else made it. Now, we have a Joshua here and we have a Caleb here, right? Anyways, that's my own stuff. (laughs) See, Moses led them to the promised land. That was his role. But he knew that his time had come to an end and he stepped back. And it wasn't about getting the glory, about being the guy who got... The big role, it was about the bigger picture, which was the promises of God being fulfilled. Are we humble enough to allow God to do his work, or is it all about us and my name has to be first? You know, it's interesting, very interesting. As you look back in the Old Testament, if I were to ask you, who's the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, who would you say? What do you think? Hmm? Go ahead, yell it out. Elijah? A lot of people say Elijah was probably the most popular prophet in the Old Testament. Did some amazing things, right? He, he had the showdown with the prophets of Baal. He called down the fire of God. He stopped the rain. He raised the dead. He did these amazing miracles, but he had an assistant, did he? Named Elisha. And at the end of Elijah's life, before he's caught up to heaven, Elisha says, I want double of your blessing. 
And Elijah says, if you see me when I go, you'll get it. You know what's cool? We have recorded in the Bible Elijah doing 14 miracles. Guess how many Elisha did? 28. Exactly what he asked God for. You see, Elijah wasn't interested in building up his name, but he said, God, let the second generation come. Let them do twice as much as me. That's okay because it's to your glory. Amen? The third thing we learned from this encounter of Moses handing over authority to to Joshua is that we need to empower them, these people that we see. We need to empower them with authority and opportunity. You can't just say, oh, they're, they're good. They could do this. But we don't trust them enough because, let's face it, no one can do it as good as you, right? Isn't that how we think sometimes? So it's not enough to just recognize who that leader is. It's not just to recognize that person, but then we have to empower them and give them the authority to go out and actually do the work. Moses anointed Joshua in front of everybody. He said, he's the man now. And Moses goes to the side, and he literally goes away to die. He allows Joshua to do what God has called him to do. There's a lot of Joshuas in this room today. That might not be your actual name, but there's a lot of Joshuas in this room. You've been faithful. You've just been serving along the sidelines. You've let Moses do his thing. But this is your time. There's a lot of students in this room who are going to be starting school in just a couple of weeks. And whether you're going into grade 6, 8, 9, 12, college, university, medical school, teacher's college, wherever it is that you're going, in a moment I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. And the people who are around that raised hand, I want you to extend your hands towards them. And we're going to pray a Moses to Joshua blessing over those students. Because those students are the Joshua. They're the next generation. They're the ones who need to continue the legacy of faith. But in order for Joshua to rise up, Moses has to back off. And for those of us who have been the Moses, we need to understand and read the times and seasons in our lives and say, God, it's not about me. But it's about you. And if I'm not the one to do it, that's okay. I just want it to get done. That needs to be our hearts, amen? So let me ask you, if you're a student going into school this September, no matter what grade you're going into, let me see your hands lifted up. Come on, don't be shy. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front or to stand. I'm not going to point you out, do anything. Just leave your hands lifted up for a second. See all these Joshuas? Now, I want all the Moseses around the Joshuas to go ahead and extend your hands towards that Joshua. Go ahead. And we're going to pray and believe that God is going to raise that person up to become all that he has ordained for them to be. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. This is the final verse I want to share with you. Just keep your hands up. It won't be long. The Bible says, Therefore, be imitators. It doesn't say of Moses, does it? It doesn't say be imitators of Job. 
says, be imitators of God. He is our greatest example. Amen. So those of you who have their hands raised and others around you extending hands, let's begin to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that this room is filled with Joshua's. Men and women of God who are going to take this experience of faith to the next level, to another generation. And Lord, I pray for us, for those of us who are a Moses, that we would release the Joshua's to go and do and become what you've ordained for them to be. That we would not be greedy. We would not want to hold on to the glory and to the fame, but we would let go in you and bless and honor and walk alongside these Joshua's. Lord, as they embark in school in in the next coming weeks, God, just be with them. Give them boldness. Give them courage. For you said to Joshua, you said, hey, listen, as I was with Moses, spending time with him, parting the sea, bringing the plagues, talking to him out of a bush, as I was with Moses, Joshua, I'm going to be with you. Lord, let these students know that you are with them, that you've never left them, you've never forsaken them, and you've never forgotten them. Let this year be a year of transformation to become the very thing that you've called them to be. And we release these young people to you in Jesus' name. And if you agree, say amen. Amen.